As we've been studying the Gospel of John, the Gospel which means good news, we have seen the reality of the good news of Jesus come alive in every single page, every single chapter, every single story, and in every single believing heart. It's when we turn to the Gospel of John that we remember Gospel. We remember not only the good news for the good days, but we remember the good news is still good. In fact, maybe especially good when the days are bad. What does it mean for us to see God in not only the good days, but to see God in the bad days? The Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. But we know this, when we are maybe not physically blinded, but we are emotionally and mentally overwhelmed by our suffering, it is sometimes difficult to see. Not only to see hope, not only to see answers, not only to see perhaps the way and the path that we should go, but sometimes we are so blinded by our pain, it's hard for us to see God working at all. Now the truth is that when we come to Scripture, we are reminded that everything we believe is an act of faith. How many of us saw God literally today? How many of us beheld Him in all of His glory and he spoke audibly and directly to you today. Now, in the same way that when we see a breeze, we don't actually see the wind, we see the effects of the wind, of course. We are cognizant of God's moving, of God's power, of God's presence all the time. And this is why what you're about to read in John chapter 9 is not just about a man receiving physical sight. It's not just one miracle, it's two. This man will not only receive sight with his physical eyes, but he will behold Jesus, be saved, and see with his spiritual eyes. And many of us can relate to that. Many of us can relate to how before we knew Christ, we thought this world was God forsaken. And then we come to know Jesus and we see the world as God-saturated. Yes, broken. Yes, dark. But the light of the world shining in it. So, when we experience bad days, how good is the good news? What is the good news? Is the good news some form or some version of Christian karma? Meaning, God helps those who help themselves and everybody gets what they deserve. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that the good news that we need when problems come our way? No, the truth is when we look at the cross, what do we see? The complete opposite. We see we don't get what we deserved, which was God's right judgment. And in fact, the one person that didn't deserve it got it. Jesus got the sin that we deserved out of love for us. No, the truth is, if we have some kind of version of Christian karma, we will always be frustrated with God. What do I mean by that? Meaning that if we have some understanding, 
that God is going to bless us because of us, that God is going to protect us and give us what we want because we are being an upright person or a good person, and that is good. It's good by God's grace to live a good life. The Bible affirms that. That's not what I'm talking about here. What happens is when we give ourselves to not the good news, but some kind of form of Christian karma, if I could use that phrase, then we feel like God is indebted to us. God had done all his work for you. Try to live a good life. Try to be a good person. And you let this happen to me? You let this pain, you let this suffering, this hardship, I got fired, my kid is sick, my marriage is on the rocks? Listen, this is how it's supposed to go. I'm supposed to be a good person and you're supposed to give me the blessings that I deserve. You see, not only does karma not satisfy, but karma doesn't make sense. No, when we come to Christ and we come to his word, we see that God gives us something better. The good news is better than karma, amen? amen. The good news is more beautiful than Christian superstition. And we all got a little superstition in us. We all think if we say the right word, if we hang the right thing, or if we go through the right motions, and then somehow we can manipulate God's favor and God's protection, it doesn't always work. In fact, it almost always doesn't work. Why? How do we understand pain in this world? People call it the problem of pain. Why do they call it the problem of pain? Because it's a problem that many people try to give solutions to. So what is the good news in our suffering? First and foremost, right out of the gate, the good news is not Christian karma. The good news is not Christian superstition. The good news is not hang on. No, the good news goes deeper. The good news is that God is hanging on to you, amen? The good news is what Isaiah said in chapter 43, verse 1. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, <clears throat> Jacob, he who formed you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by my name, and you are mine. Church, let's say that together. You are mine mine, the Lord says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you blaze, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When we come to John chapter 9, <clears throat> we're going to see blindness all over the place not just in the man that can't physically see, we're going to see a certain amount of blindness, a blind spot in the disciples, Jesus' followers' theology. And then we are going to see darkness, terrible darkness by those who represent, claim to represent God. It's going to be this blind man that not only sees, but helps us to see. It's going to be this blind man who has his eyes opened by the light of the world, Jesus Christ, that's going to hopefully open our eyes this morning. But I have to ask this, friends, right now, in this moment, your suffering is so real. Your trials are not some figment of your imagination. It's at this moment, right now, 
because this is not a game and because you have felt its toll and its effect, I'm going to ask you to do this right now. Do not take this lightly because your suffering won't, because death will not, because this is not a game. When my son Joshua hurt his eye, I came to the realization that I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready. And what's my job? My job as a pastor is to help Christians be ready. And I wasn't. Still not. Sure I'm not. What we need to do is to take every day as a gift from God, find moments of joy and moments of rest, moments where we enjoy His good gifts, but let us never deceive ourselves into thinking that God has given us this world as a playground when oftentimes we know it to be a battleground. So, some of us will come in, we'll sit down, we'll sit on our phone for a couple minutes, think about work, start gazing at the ceiling and start counting the lights, figuring out, all right, if that light fell, who would that fall on? (laughs) I've been there, I've done it. Others of us, because we know the severity of the situation, we will come as a blind man, as a blind man hoping to see. I hope that's us. I hope that's myself. John chapter 9, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Now notice, if you're taking notes, note those two words, from birth. Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Let's pause right there. Right out of the gate, you're introduced to the main character. Of course, it's Jesus. You're introduced to the person who is suffering, this man who is blind. But you're also introduced to a question that perhaps many of us either can relate to or have asked at the same time. You see, what can happen with suffering, what can happen is tr- with trial, is either we minimize it or we moralize it. The disciples are following in a long line of religious moralizers. We are first introduced to these religious moralizers in the Old Testament, in the book of Job. Has anyone ever read the book of Job? Perhaps before you came to saving faith in Jesus and you didn't know your Bible very well and you're flipping through the pages and you thought, oh, wow, there's a book on getting a job in the Bible. How exciting. I need to read that. Oh, oh, my. Oh, mercy. What was Job's job? Job's job was to help us know what it means to understand suffering. Now, what's so interesting is Job is the first book that was entered into the canon of Scripture. It doesn't tell the oldest story, but it's the first book that was entered into your Bible. As if to say God's word on suffering was the first word introduced to the word. Okay? Does that make sense? Secondly, what we see here is something similar to what we're going to see in the New Testament in the Gospel of John chapter 9. Job was a sinner, just like me and you. The Bible says No one is righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Job needed God. He needed his grace. He needed his forgiveness. But the Bible says that Job was a good man. He was a righteous man. So that means what the Bible's saying is that there was no spectacular sin that translated to his spectacular suffering. When the Bible highlights that Job was a man who was a faithful man, a good man, 
It's really just telling us that, of course, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't God. He wasn't the Savior. He needed grace, but there was no A to B connection. That he hadn't sinned in such a way that would bring upon this onslaught of pain. And that's what it was. It was a freight train of pain that ran over him and his family. He lost children. Lord, help us. He lost business. He lost livestock. His wife tells him to curse God and die. He loses his health. And that's all before his friends show up. His quote-unquote friends. With friends like these, who needs enemies? All these friends, they look at Job and they look at his whole life, his whole world, and one day comes crashing down. Listen, I know a lot of you, and I know a lot of your stories, even for those of you that I don't know. Here's what I do know. You didn't suffer as bad as this guy. Job suffered worse than you. And I know that you've been through some real, real trials. Job had it worse. Of course, that's part of the reason why it's in there, right? It's part of the reason why it's in the Bible. Suffering touches every single one of us. So here in the story of Job, we are presented with the question of suffering. And what Job's friends do is they come and say, Job, you are a mess and your life is a wreck. Confess your sin because clearly this is something that you did. Are there times in the Bible where there are clear clear consequences for our sins. Absolutely. I mean, you can look at it as far as families. You can look at it as far as nations. You can look at it as far as individuals. David and Bathsheba's sin led to consequences. Miriam's sin led to consequences. You could think over and over again of people that had sinned and it led to real life consequences. So yes, that does happen. The Bible does say that you will reap what you sow. But in this broken world, there's not always an obvious, clear line from point A to point B. Job's friends thought there were. You gotta, comp- you gotta confess, you gotta repent of this sin. And Job's the whole time's like, I got nothing. I don't know why it happened. I don't know who it happened. I have no, nothing for you. And then of course, while he's in this storm of suffering, God reveals that he's bigger than the storm by speaking out of a literal storm. God in the whirlwind speaks to Job's friends and rebukes them. Terrible friends. But then he also speaks to Job and reminds him of his bigness. And then he blesses Job twofold of what he lost. What we see in Jesus' followers is that in that time, those centuries and those millennia, Christian, or I should say Jewish thought had not developed past the thinking of Job's friends. Meaning that, all right, they come and they see this blind man and they ask Jesus, Jesus, why is this man born blind? Was it his sin or his his parents' sin? Now notice, born blind. What are they insinuating? They're asking Jesus, did this man sin in his mommy's womb? Did he commit a sin in his mommy's belly? Sometimes our questions about suffering to God can be quite silly. How many of us can hear ourselves saying things and feeling things and asking things that if we were to attach ourselves, we would say, oh, come on, that's that's not the God I worship. That's not the God who is. So they're asking a seemingly preposterous question. Babies don't sin in the womb. I mean, what was he doing, pulling on the umbilical cord too hard? (laughs) 
Jesus is going to say it wasn't his sin or the parents' sin. But there is something that God wants to reveal in this man's blindness. So what we're going to see is that while we truly look for answers, friends, this is so important. If you're taking notes, ready? While we're looking for freedom from the prison of pain by asking the questions of why and how, we won't find any freedom from our pain until we ask the question of who. That our pain feels personal for a reason. Yes, the disciples tried to moralize it. Others try to minimize it. For example, has anyone ever heard of Richard Dawkins? Richard Dawkins? He's kind of like the pope of the atheistic movement, all right? They have a pope too. He's the guy. He wrote this in his book, Out of Eden. He said, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, some people are going to get lucky, and you won't find, Dawkins says, any reason or rhyme for it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Doesn't that make you feel better about your suffering? He must have been great at parties. If you have a funeral, you don't want Richard Dawkins speaking at it. But that is the logical conclusion of his worldview. If we are just evolved animals, if everything that we see is just the uh, effect of that cause of blind evolutionary processes, then why do we even care about suffering? But that's the thing. Man, we care. How many of us know this? People can ignore God all their lives, use his name in vain, defy his word, rebel against him, but then all of a sudden, when suffering comes, what? The God that we ignored, the God that we defamed, the God that we rebelled against, now all of a sudden we have fists towards heaven and saying, how dare you? Well, that's because it feels personal. Part of it's because we expect this world to be heaven and it's not. But it also feels personal. That's why voices in our culture like Richard Dawkins will try to minimize the pain. You can't minimize it. You can't silence it. And you can't help escape how personal it feels. Many of us have been touched by the reality of loss, the reality of death. How many of us know that when someone passes, especially someone abruptly, that it feels like something was robbed from you? It feels like something was taken from you. And whereas you can replace a wallet, you can replace a necklace, you can even replace a car, You can't replace that person. They're gone forever, and it feels like a thief came in and robbed you of one of the things that matters the most to you. That doesn't feel like blind, pitiless indifference. No, that feels like there's a target on me, and someone took something that belongs to me. It feels personal. So how beautiful it is that in our personal pain, in our personal loss, God sent what? A person. Jesus Christ, who will not only correct our, let's say, limited ways of understanding suffering, but reveal that he is the solution to it. John chapter 9, verse 3. Let's look back at the Bible. 
The disciples ask a question. Jesus is kind enough to answer. John chapter 9, verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There it is. Underline that. Circle that. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says that it was neither this man's sin nor his parents' sin, but that there is a greater work going on. That there's a greater way to understand our trials and our pain. First off, that we not only know that God is hanging on and holding on to us, but that God is with us. That there's never been a moment, Christian, there's never been a moment where you have been unloved and unfathered by God. And that's really good news. But when we look to the cross, as we prepare ourselves on this journey towards Easter, we also think of what? That this man and the darkness that he lives in was alleviated and healed, not because of anything he does. Jesus is going to send him to the pool of Siloam, which literally means sent. But it's not his obedience, and it's not the pool that means sent that saved him and gave him sight. No, it's the sent one who does it. Who does it. So what do we do? What do we, how do we understand this? Jesus is the light of the world. Where do we find hope and consolation in our suffering? There's many different places we can look to it. But I think his light shines the darkness when we remember that the light of the world was snuffed out for us. I mean, what an amazing thing. He said in John chapter 8 and in John chapter 9, Jesus is the light of the world. What does that mean? Well, the world's in darkness, and we have to admit that. But then he became our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 said this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here in John chapter 9, the light of the world helps people to see, you know what's going to happen? When he dies on the cross, no one's going to be able to see because the light of the world is snuffed out and everything's covered in complete darkness. Matthew chapter 27 says, Now from the sixth hour, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God did. Why? Because we needed him to become our sin. We needed him to take our darkness. We needed Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice, the substitution for us. So that what? So that we could see. Listen, I'm going to tell you how the story goes. Spoiler alert. This guy's going to see again. But what if he didn't? What if he didn't see again? What if this man never saw another thing ever again? Let me ask you the opposite question. What if another man had perfect sight, perfect vision, and could never believe or receive the light of the world? Who's living in greater darkness? 
What if we have 20-20 vision all of our life and we cannot see God's grace at work in our lives? Then who's really blind? Who's the blind man? Who's the one that claims to be able to see? Our pride and our hubris makes us blinder than that man ever was. No, it's in humility that Jesus took our darkness with him on the cross. It's Jesus and his love for us, his love for you, that we can finally see. So it says here in John chapter 9, verse 6, Having said these things, he, Jesus, spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed. And what does it say, church? Came back seeing. He came back seeing. Now, why did Jesus use the mud and use the saliva and apply it to this man's eyes? Sure, certainly he had the power just to speak and to help this man see. So how do we understand this? Well, after studying nine commentaries and two books on this subject, I can say with absolute confidence that I have no idea whatsoever. <laughs> but I can guess. In the same way that our first father, Adam, was made from the dust. Jesus uses his saliva. Jesus, who is the living water of eternal life, uses his saliva. Because at birth, this man... Had a, he was loved by God, but he had a physical malady. So Jesus spits into the dust that made Adam, that created this man, and now he is recreating him. He is recreating and revealing his light. So John Calvin also put it this way. When this man would walk over and he can't see, he's been in the pool of Siloam dozens, if not hundreds of times, but when he gets to the pool and he not only gets water on his face, he not only feels the sight being restored to his eyes, but the mud clears off of his face. Now he has an even deeper appreciation for what Jesus has done. There will be people in Scripture who are healed by Jesus and never say even thank you to Jesus. There will be people in churches that are forgiven by Jesus, and you wouldn't see any kind of gratitude for the forgiveness of Jesus. When we experience suffering, Jesus says that we are going to be used by God for the work of God. You see, while everything is theological, this wasn't just theoretical for Jesus. No, he didn't want to have a seminary class discussion on the problem of pain with his disciples. He got dirty. He entered into this man's mess, his darkness, and revealed his light. So as Christians, Jesus says, we have a work to do. Not only will God bring his glory out of our suffering and pain, but also we have a work to do here in this life. Night is coming. What does that mean? That means for many, many, many people. How does Jesus describe eternity? Narrow is the path that leads to life, and wide and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Night is coming. He describes 
hell as outer darkness. It's coming. So what does it mean for us to know that we don't know when that day is going to come? For those of us that trust in Jesus, we never will see the darkness. Hallelujah. We'll never see that place that God had made for the devil and his angels. We'll never see it because of Jesus. But many will. What does it mean for us to use these days and to use God's grace, his gifts in us so that we can work to help people see? I heard a story. It's from the book God Came Near by Max Lucado of a man named Bob Edens who, similar to this man, was blind. Blind all of his life. The story goes like this. For 51 years, Bob Edens was blind. He couldn't see a thing. His world was as black as, the, as a dark hall. His world was a black hall of sounds and smells. He felt his way through five decades of darkness. Can you imagine, church? And then he could see. A skilled surgeon performed a complicated operation, and for the first time, Bob Edens had sight. He found it overwhelming. I never would have dreamed that yellow, Bob said, was so yellow. I don't have the words, Bob admits. I'm amazed by yellow. But red is my favorite color. I just can't believe red. I can see the shape of the moon, and I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail. Bob continues, and of course, sunrises and sunsets. And at night, I look at the stars in the sky and the flashing light. You could never know how wonderful everything is. That's a man who couldn't see now all of a sudden helping us to see. Helping us to see not only the gift of sight, but helping us also, if I could, understand what that moment will be like when we throw off this mortal coil, when we breathe our last breath, when we pass over from death to life, and we behold Jesus in all of his beauty. We behold God the Father in his kingdom and all of his glory. What's going to be more real? This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. What's going to be more real, this world or that? When a blind man sees, all of a sudden he appreciates sight, but he also realizes how dark the darkness was. Yellow. It's so yellow. And red. How about red? I love red. When we trust in Jesus, not only do we see him with us in our suffering, do we see him not only at work for his glory in our suffering, do we see him not only using our suffering to help others see, but in the end, we wait for the day where we will see him face to face and by God's grace, hear him say the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing will sound the clearer and nothing will look the brighter than that moment. It's as if we're already in darkness and we wait through faith to behold him in his glory. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 16 puts it like this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us 
an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen? No, no, no. I got to read that again. I got to read that again. Church, I'm wanting church today, if you could tell. I'm going to read this, and I don't ask for any kind of outward presentation that you're getting it, but I'm going to read it again just to help us understand it. So we do not lose heart. Colts that community church, friends, family, all of you that are struggling and suffering, we do not lose hearts. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our Jesus is better. As we look not only the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see God at work in your suffering? Don't be blind to how he is the light of the world and he can give you eyes to see in this life and in the next. How's that song by John Newton go? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for your Son. It's my hope and prayer that you would send your Spirit to intersect with your word and lead us all to the light of the world. Jesus Christ, your perfect Son. Jesus Christ, who not only revealed your light and the good news of your love in this world, but that he overcame the world as he was enveloped in our darkness so that three days later he could rise again. He could save us from that place of eternal darkness. He could save us for that place of everlasting hope. He could bring us to a place where we could finally see what truly matters, and that's Jesus. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better. Jesus helps us to see how you are at work in our suffering. So prepare us, Lord, as we come to your table. Forgive us, Lord, of our sin. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit and help us to remember the cross of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.